Good morning. You guys can have a seat. How you doing? I hope you're doing great. So we had our Relay for Life weekend this weekend, and our church was involved with that. And so we had 25 people end up being involved, and they raised over $2,800. And yeah, that's exciting. Um, the, the chance to engage our community is even more exciting. See you fifth through seventh graders. Love you guys. Have fun. Um, yeah. So that was exciting for us to engage our community and our world out there. So we're glad you're here. This is our first week of doing two services, not doing it on Easter. So we're excited for that change and to see these two services fill up and continue to grow. So a couple weeks ago, I noticed my kids' bed sheets were getting pretty gross. I don't know if you have little ones out there. Um, some of you do, so you're in my boat. Uh, I don't know what the like limit is on how often you're supposed to wash bed sheets. Uh, in college, they told us to wash our bed sheets um, once a month, I think, at our first meeting. And so I usually wash my bed sheets uh, when I went home at summertime, and that was about it. And, and so my kids were kind of on that same streak. I just did not want to wash their bed sheets. So when you wash them, you got to take them off, take off the mattress pad, do the whole thing, and then you got to put them back on. My kids have bunk beds. The bunk beds are up against the wall. And so changing it is not the most easy process in the world. Uh, in fact, I, if you gave me the option of changing my kids' bed sheets or watching a NASCAR race, I'd probably pick NASCAR. And I'll just tell you, that's not Something I'm a fan of, so I, I don't enjoy changing my kids' bed sheets is where I'm going with this. Parents, you're going to know what happened to me, though. Changed my kids' bed sheets, went through all that trouble, washed them, put them back on. What happens at 2 a.m.? Who gets woken up in their bed? Hey, Dad. I'm going in there stripping off bed sheets again at 2 in the morning. Two nights later, 4 in the morning. Dad, what? I had an accident. Great. So I haven't done your bed sheets in like six months. I wash them and now I'm doing them again. So I pull them off. We wash them, throw the kids on the top bunk and let them sleep up there. The next day though, after they're washed, I'm like, okay, you're going to help me do this. You guys are old enough. You can start participating in some of these fun things. My response was not exactly thrilling. My kid looked at me and said, I don't want to do this. And I thought, oh, that's strange. Cause I really do want to do this. I love it. <laughs> No, I, I hate it. I can't stand it. And I thought, so often my kids want to obey, or they, they're not necessarily obey, they want to help when it's things they can't really help with. So like if I'm changing the oil on the car, my kids want to go, hey, dad, can I help? No, you, you can't do that quite yet. Or if I'm using power tools, dad, can I do that? And no, I'm not going to let you use a saw. <laughs> That's not going to happen. And, and so they want to help and be helpful in areas that are fun for them and convenient for them and things they enjoy doing. They don't always want to help with what they're told to do. And, and I think I'm probably not alone with that as parents. Unfortunately, I kind of see us as the American church going that way. When it's convenient, when it's something we enjoy, many times we want to jump in and help. Sometimes when it's the simple things we're commanded to do, we're like, yeah, that's not going to be so fun though. I don't know if I want to get involved with that. And so today I want to ask us how we're doing at this idea and this command uh, of missions, of engaging our world and challenge us to have a broader perspective of the world and see what's going on. So the first thing we have to do is basically we got to go start at the very beginning. we got to highlight what happened and why there's a global problem and what's the global solution. So if we're going to go back to the very beginning, which is a quote from Megamind, by the way, the greatest movie ever if you've never seen it. Um, so the story starts at the beginning, the absolute very beginning, and that's Genesis 1, chapter 1, and it says, In the beginning... 
God created much better second service. First service, I only had one response. Okay, Maria, you're still, yeah, you were both services. Good job. Um, so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, so we got a God established as a creator. Regardless of what you believe on time period, God establishes himself as the creator who created all of this. He made a place called Garden of Eden where people lived. Adam and Eve walked in an unbroken fellowship, unbroken relationship with God. And then here's where we find the problem. The problem that exists is sin. And what happens here, I'm jumping a little ahead of myself, sin enters into the world and this causes a problem for all men. And today as we read these verses and we talk about different things, I want you to catch there's one common word or a common theme and it's this idea of all and everyone. And we're all bound to the same punishment and yet we all have an opportunity for the same solution. And so Paul kind of sums it up in Romans 5.12. Here's what he says about original sin. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way came to all, excuse me, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. So we're all under this curse of sin. All people have a price to pay for sin. So all mankind is guilty. Through our link to Adam, we're guilty of sin. And that in itself is the global problem. You know, we, we have different organizations championing their cause. The ultimate problem in the world is sin, the fall of man. That's what brings about terrible things in this world. And so we're all under this same punishment, the same consequence. All people have sinned wherever you're at. You're in Oakdale, California. You're under the same curse that the, someone who is in Africa or someone who's in Asia. We're all bound by this same curse. Now, fortunately for us, it didn't end there. There came a solution. And what is that solution? It's the person of Jesus Christ. After this very first mess up, which brought condemnation and sin and separation from God, uh, God gives out his punishments, basically. He looks to Adam, he looks to Eve, and then he turns to the serpent. And this is in Genesis 3.15, and what we find the first messianic prophecy. All right? And she's going to say this in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, or hostility, make you at war, basically, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So God is telling everyone what's going to happen. This is kind of what we say is the first messianic prophecy of looking forward to the coming person who's going to defeat sin and defeat Satan. And what he says is, you're going to strike his heel, and we believe that's Jesus dying on the cross, but he's going to crush your head. And I know looking at me, some of you guys think that guy looks really rugged. He must be a fighter. I I don't know. I kind of carry that manner about me. So watch out. It's the sweater vest that's intimidating and the tie. As much as I look rugged and like a fighter, I'm actually not. As Flynn Ryder said from Tangled, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I got kids at my house. Disney movies are all we watch. Megamind, Tangled. So if you hear me reference them, I'm sorry. I got four kids under six. That's what we watch. Um. So as much as you think I'm a fighter, I'm actually not. But if I was in a fight, I think I could understand that I would much rather have my heel struck than my head crushed. Okay, and, and in this prophecy, God's telling them, you're going to strike his heel. There's gonna, you're going to inflict pain on him, but he's going to crush your head. And at the end of the day, if you got your head crushed, you're the loser. All right, we know victory is coming. And we know ultimately Satan is going to have his head crushed. Sin is going to be defeated. It was defeated on the cross. It's going to be sealed at Christ's return. And we understand there's victory in Jesus. And now there's salvation in the world. So there's this idea that we're all under the eternal consequence of sin. 
all people of sin, all nations, all generations, we all carry the same weight and the same burden of sin. We also understand, though, that now all people have a chance at salvation through Jesus Christ. He's the solution. Paul, again, looking for him to sum it up in Romans 10, says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. Check verse 13 because it's going to have one of those catchphrase words we're using today. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's the everyone. The verse before that basically says there's no distinction in people. In verse 12, if you ever want to look that up. There's no distinction. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's, a, there's this global problem, sin. There's a global solution of Jesus. We had a creator, mankind sin. We had a broken relationship. God sends Christ to earth to pay the price for that sin. And then Jesus dies on the cross, paying that price for sin, giving us victory, a chance at eternity for those who believe in him. And his last words to his disciples are this in Matthew 28. He says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey what I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. There was the word again, go and make disciples of all nations. The gospel message and how it's proclaimed is for all people in all nations. It is never intended to be an isolated message for a certain group of people or a certain sect or a certain tribe or a certain tongue. The gospel has been intended to impact our world in all nations. And we are commanded to proclaim that. The very first thing when we think of why should we engage our world Because we are commanded to. Christ understood victory was sealed when he defeated sin on the cross. And the last thing he tells his disciples, now go and proclaim that in this world. Take that message to all nations and proclaim that truth. So why do we engage our world? Because there's a global solution in the person of Jesus and he's commanded us to. Another verse, Psalm 96.3 says this, Declare his glory among the nation, his marvelous deeds among all people. There's that word all again. You never see the gospel secluded or the message of God's greatness secluded or isolated. Declare his glory among all nations. We see an Old Testament example, one of the very first missionaries who probably didn't even know he was what he was doing, but he was obedient to his command was in Abram, soon to become Abraham. But God calls him in Genesis 12. He calls him and and this gives him the Abrahamic covenant. And we see God at work through him, ultimately bringing about his redemptive plan. We see Abraham's simple obedience to it. Now, there's no one person who can change the world outside of the person of Jesus Christ. See, I can't, I can't change the world. You can't change the world, but you can be obedient to what God's called you to do in this world, trusting that he's at work and he can change the world through Christ. Here's what God's call on Abraham. He said this in Genesis 12. The Lord has said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. See, he couldn't literally bless everyone on earth. Abraham couldn't. It would be impossible. All people of all times. But what he could do is be obedient to God's plan. And God is working his redemptive plan through Abraham that's ultimately going to bring about Messiah who can be a blessing to all people of the earth. 
Paul has the hindsight to see this in Galatians 3, and he kind of sums this back up, seeing the finished work of the Abrahamic covenant. And here's what he says in Galatians 3, 26 through 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have closed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. See, now we're all connected. We're all heirs to the same promise. It's not based on our race or nationality. It's not, there's no distinction. If we were to put that in modern terms, there's not rich or poor. There's not black or white. There's not Republican or Democrat. There are people who are believers and heirs to the promise of God. And now we identify ourselves as Christians. So my brothers and sisters in this world are not just people in Oakdale. They're people all around the world. You see, mankind has kind of drawn national boundaries. But God sees people. He sees people that are in depravity, lost in their sin, knowing the only way to be made right is through Christ. And so we identify ourselves as a Christian, uh, as followers of Christ. We went to a church in Fresno when we went down a few uh, weeks ago as a staff. We got there Sunday afternoon, so we went to church together that Sunday night. And the pastor there, his name was uh, Brad Bell, and he shared this quote, so I didn't want to take credit for it. Um, But he, he said this, We come together not based on a shared affinity, but based on our shared identity. And in Galatians 3, we see that pointed out. And we, we in our culture, we may share some affinity, But we gather as a corporate body of believers based on our identity in Christ. And when our identity is found in him, man, we're going to love the people he loved. We're going to care about the people he cared about. Jesus came to reach out to the lowest of the low. He came to reach out to sinners, people lost. He reached out to people. He cared for people. He had a heart for people. So as we identify as a believer in Christ, as someone who's a little Christ, we're going to have a heart for the people he has a heart for. And if you look at scripture, it's hard to say God doesn't have a heart for all people and desire to see salvation and that message brought into the world. So as we identify with, as a believer, do we identify with the people Christ came for? Do we care for them? Do we love them? Do we desire to act? So we go into the world, one, because we're commanded to do so. We've been told, go into the world. Two, we go into the world because we're compelled by love. I think we can clearly see this in Paul's life. Paul was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked. He was just persecuted. He ultimately died uh, for his faith. And we see that Paul tells us, I'm compelled by love. And in 2 Corinthians 5, and if you just, you can stay there. That's mainly where we'll be the rest of the time. But 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says this, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who, should, who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So we see Paul saying Christ's love compels him into action. He understands that one died for all, and now I act on that truth, and I'm compelled out of love to act. And so it's kind of like this. The more we know, the more we mature, the more we grow in our faith, the more we understand what Christ did for us, that one died for all, and I'm compelled in love to act. Because, see, as I, as I grow, and hopefully as you're maturing in your faith, you see the depths of your depravity. You see, I was a sinner. I was condemned. I deserve punishment and judgment. And as I grow in that and understand that, man, if I, the more I understand how low and depraved I was, the more I appreciate and love what Jesus did for me. And those two things unite, and it drives us into 
truth-based action. See, our love compels us. We, we say it around here, our love for God leads us to love our world. It, it drives action from us because God loves us and gave us Jesus Christ, and we understand what he went through to bring us back to himself, and now that drives us into action. And so it's not just like this emotional feeling of love. Sometimes we just think you fall into love, you fall out of love. Our, our love for Christ is this ongoing thing of the more we know and understand what he did, the more it compels us to love and in love engage our world because I see what he did for me. It doesn't spur us into complacency. It motivates us into action. And we see that clearly in Paul's life. And he says, Christ's love compelled us because I'm convinced, we are convinced that one died for all. And so this truth, it's just ongoing. So I act because I love, and I, and I love because of what Christ did for me. And the more I understand that, the more I do, because the more I know he loved me. And so it just continues on. If you go down a little further in 2 Corinthians there, you're going to see that, one, we act because we're commanded to. Two, we act because we go into the world because we're compelled by love. And three, we represent our king. Follow with me in 2 Corinthians 5, 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, God has made a way for us to be reconciled, to be brought back to him, to be at peace with him. And now we're ambassadors of that message. An ambassador is just simply someone who delivers a message on behalf of a king or an authority. For us, it would be on behalf of our president and administration. An ambassador delivers that message. As a believer, we're told to we're ambassadors of this message of reconciliation. This God who you were at odds with because you were a sinner has now declared peace and made you right through Jesus Christ. And that's the message we take to the world. We're ambassadors of that message. I don't know if you saw this story uh, uh, recently in, in Iran where a young man killed another young man and he was going to be executed. And the victim's family was the ones who were going to um, release the lever that dropped him to his death. Um, a different justice system than we have, obviously. But he was blindfolded and had the noose around his neck. And the family is next to him ready to, ready to pull it and drop him to his death, the victim's family. I, I, can't, I can't put myself in that spot. I don't know what you're thinking, understanding that at any moment this could be it. It gets pulled and I drop. The victim's family also had a choice and they could remove the noose from the young man's neck. And so as he sits there, I don't know for how long, it didn't say, the dad reached over and pulled the noose from this young man's neck. Man, that's us. We are sitting here dead in our sins, just waiting, waiting to be dropped to our punishment. And God has released us from our sin through Jesus Christ. Martin Luther called it the great exchange where Jesus bore our unrighteousness and we get to put on his righteousness. And this is the message of hope that we take into the world. 
We don't take hostility and anger and bitterness into the world. We take a message of hope and reconciliation and peace and that God has made a way for you to be right with him. Jesus took on all the things that weren't right with you and he bore those on the cross and now I'm an ambassador of this message to go and tell the world that. So what do we do with this? What do we do? Are you following his command? The first and foremost point, are you following that command? As his followers, are we going into our world? Do we engage our world? And for most of us, our world right now is Oakdale, California. If you woke up this morning unsure of where you are, let's clear it up. You're in Oakdale, okay? And we love our world, the the world as a whole. But first and foremost, right now, you're a missionary in Oakdale, California. And you may not like that fact, and you may be counting the days until you're out of here. But right now, this is where you're at. And so you are a missionary in Oakdale, California. Are you following that command? Where you live, work, and play, are you following the command to be a missionary? We can all have dreams and aspirations of something bigger, and those are great, and leaving and going out into the world as a whole. But first and foremost, are we following the command right here? Are we obeying it? Are we being a missionary where we're at? Secondly, are we engaging that world? Are we following that command to not isolate it? Some people are very happy in Oakdale, and this is it. This is their world. It's, it's a very myopic view. This is all they see. Oakdale born and Oakdale bred, going to be a Mustang till the day I'm dead. They, they, know, <laughs> they know nothing more than Oakdale. And, and I love this community, but as much as we need to engage it, we've also got to see beyond it. And see, there's a whole world out there that needs Jesus. So we're on task, we're on mission where we live, where we're at now, but we also understand the gospel message was never isolated and never meant to be isolated, that it's meant to be in something that we engage into our world with. Are you compelled by love? What motivates you? What motivates us to act and engage with people? Man, hopefully it's because we love. We see Christ's love for us. We see what he did for us. We understand the suffering, the sacrifice he made for us, and all of a sudden we're compelled by love because this truth impacts people and cultures. There's a, there's a popular thing kind of going on now, the, the idea of social justice. And either, either way you go on that, I, I'm not really to talk about that. But this idea that we've got to make things right with people. We've got to restore them physically and make all this right. And here's what I, I think as a church where we need to understand for missions what we need to do. We've got to be restoring people to God. If that means through meeting some physical needs, excellent. But that physical need has to be rooted in the truth of the gospel. We can't just go out and help people and delay their eternal fate while addressing their physical suffering. Because if all we do is address physical suffering and ignore their eternal destiny, eternal, the, the, the reality that there's a real hell, and we ignore that, but we help them, and we haven't done them a, a service. We've just made their life a, a little better. But we've delayed a worse or fate. Now, if we go out and engage, and through engaging their physical suffering, allows us to share Christ and see them come to faith in him, I think that's where we need to be as a church gospel engaging mission work if it helps physical suffering great but the most important core the problem we all share the problem that connects all of us and binds all of us is the problem of sin and sin has to be addressed when sin is addressed in cultures cultures change your compassion for other people change because naturally when we're sinful we're naturally selfish and we're naturally self-centered 
the more I become compassionate, the more the gospel engages my heart, the more I can engage my world because I start to care about people that I have no connection to. How can we care about people in another country or people over here? naturally. It's not within us because you know what I'm worried about? I'm worried about going home, taking care of my kids, making sure they have food, getting all the things done I want to get done so then I can have my own time. So selfishness is this natural reality we all battle against. Through Christ's love and being compelled through love, we can see the world and see the need for the world and understand, one, they need Jesus, and two, how can we engage that need? Maybe it's through a physical suffering or church plan. We don't know, but they need Jesus. That's the, that's the real solution is Christ. So what compels you to act in your world? And then are you acting as a faithful ambassador for your king? Are we being that faithful ambassador? Are we delivering the gospel message, this message of hope? That our king who was at war with you, who was at odds with you, who was in hostility with you because you're a sinner, has declared peace. Has declared not only peace, he's allowed you to enter into his kingdom and said, come, believe in my son and we'll be at peace. There's no more hostility. And we're ambassadors of that message in this world. We look at this gospel message and we think about what it's done throughout history and time and in culture and places. What other message has transcended time the way the gospel has and impacted people 2,000 years ago, where it impacted cultures and lives and communities 2,000 years ago. And now we still see people's lives and homes changed. We see people turning back to God over this huge separation of time. Even now we can look and see, look how the gospel message transcends cultures. What connects a street kid in, in Kenya to an affluent white guy in America? There's... Those two, know, they know nothing similar in life almost of how they live. And yet the gospel message needs to be delivered to both of them and they both need to come to Jesus and Jesus can penetrate both their lives and change both of them. And yet really they have nothing in common. The gospel message transcends culture. It transcends time. It was the hope and still is the hope for all nations and all generations. The gospel message is what we have to proclaim and get out in this world. So how are you doing with that? Missions is not limited to overseas. I think that is a huge part, and we want to be actively involved. But the first place you need to be involved right now is here locally with your church. How are you involved with missions in your work, in your church, in your home? What are you doing to engage your world right now? The Christian message of the gospel, it doesn't just end when we see someone come to Christ. We engage those people. We help them mature. We want to see them grow and discipled. We want to see churches grow in other countries so they can exist long beyond our, our existence and support there. Man, we want to see this gospel message proclaimed around the world and taken throughout the world. And for where we're at right now, physically that's Oakdale, but you can still be in Oakdale and serve and have a global impact through different ministries and different opportunities. We need to have a bigger view of our world and see that Jesus came for all people. It's repeated throughout the scripture. All nations to worship him. All people are under the curse of sin. Go into all nations. We need to engage our world and see the world for what it is. It, 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 they're people who are under the same curse we were under. We do not deserve the gospel more because we were born in America. Sometimes we, we, we have a I love our country, but we can have a very arrogant view of ourselves. 
and, and I am no more worthy of the gospel message than a person born in extreme poverty who will most likely die before they're a teenager. I do not deserve Christ's righteousness any more than that person. And the reality is we've been called to engage our world. So what do we do? And, and I don't have a, like a specific answer like leave here and do this and we're going to do it because I don't think that's what I can do for you. I think that would be me overstepping and being very arrogant in what I'm saying, but I think we can do something. I think we can all do something to engage our world, engage your world locally and globally. We can, we can get involved and support our local church. Beyond that, we can pick some sort of international ministry or mission work that we can be involved with. I, I, I don't know where you're at. I'll, I'll just be honest with where I'm at. There's been different stages of life. We've been able to support international missions more. Um, financially than, than we have now. Right now, we're able to support one, and, and, that, and that's it. Man, I've, I've had four kids. I've, jobs have changed in my life, and, and that's where we're at. And, and I don't say that like bragging. Either. I would love to do more. But what would happen if we all catch this idea that we've got to do something? It's not like a thing that we can choose to do. We've got to do something to engage our local world and, and the world as a whole. That it's our mission. It's our command to do something? What if we catch that vision as a church? That we don't just want to build up a church so we can say, look look how great we are, or look at this great building eventually we built, or whatever may happen down the road. But we do it so we can reach people for Jesus and give more in this world. And so we sacrifice even of ourselves, of our own, of our own buildings, of our own ministries, understanding there's a need in this world. So how do we give more? How do we do more? How do we get the gospel message to more people? And I would just say, for all of us, we've got to figure out, I've got to be doing something. What is that? Again, I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'll say, we're going to give you an email this week after service with some suggestions of ways to support in this world. If you already support and do something, this, it's not an effort to sell you on anything else. It's, if you're wanting to get involved for the first time, there's some thoughts there on how to do it. But I want to encourage you to do something. We're going to watch a video, and then we're going to come back and kind of sum it up with some facts about why the world is in a desperate need, why people desperately need Jesus in the world. So if we're ready, we'll go ahead and uh, watch that. job is not done in the world that Christ gave us to do and the mandate is still binding on us today that's why we speak of unreached people groups but the missions is the back-breaking culture penetrating darkness shattering initial work to penetrate plant the church see it flourish get its own elders train its own people evangelize its own networks that's the task of missions it's not over and that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven and the alternative is hell and millions and millions and millions of people are on their way there and we have the only means of escape in our heads and in our hearts Jesus Christ there are many prodigal sons on our city streets they run searching for shell
So, count the cost, brothers and sisters. This is not an invitation to an easy life. For 2,000 years, 
thousands and thousands of missionaries, the unnamed, no biographies written about them, just unnamed people of whom the world is not worthy, have counted this cost and put their lives at risk and reached the loss with the only message of salvation. Most figures have the amount of churches in the United States, about 350,000, give or take. It's very hard to track. But we know that there's around 300,000 missionaries in the world today. So the question sometimes we ask ourselves, is there a need in the world? The reality is, in the United States, we have 5% of the world's population. And we account for over half of the world's churches and ministry works. Is there a need in the other 95% of the world? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can clearly say there is a need in the world. People need Jesus. They need help. There is a need. We can't ignore that. In a July 2013 article from Christianity Today online, said the, most, the surprising countries most missionaries are sent from and go to, they found that per capita the United States now ranks ninth in the world with 600 missionaries sent. Uh, per million professed believers. Uh, there's times we hear this quote often, we just need to focus on the United States. And I think when we do that, I just don't think we understand exactly what we're saying. We can't look at the world and the need and the fact that all people and all nations need to know about Jesus and say we can solely focus on one. I think we ignore the command we've been given in the Great Commission. I think we ignore the words of Christ. We ignore the message of, of hope, of reconciliation. And furthermore, I don't think that biblically you prove that that's a good model. It's not that the churches of the United States are at odds with missions work and we're competing to get funds or we're competing to get this. We're not, we're, we're not opposed to each other. In fact, I think they feed each other and they grow strong and healthy and vibrant churches. We don't have exact numbers that track as far back to, to prove this, so I'm going to step out on a limb and just use the one real example we have that's been tracked, and that was in Europe. Europe used to be the hotbed of Christianity. Churches filled, great preachers, many, many Christians. They also sent out many, many missionaries in this world. And over time, they've sent out less and less missionaries. What's happened to the number of Christians in Europe? If you know, if you've been and seen the empty churches, it's less and less and less and less and less. See, the more they engage the world, the less they engage their world. And now we see it in the United States where all of a sudden we've fallen to ninth on the missionary sent list. Would you say there's more Christians and more professing believers over the last 50 years in the United States or less? You see, these two aren't at odds with each other. 
Missionaries need vibrant, strong, healthy churches to support them, and we need to grow and be on mission and be on point in Oakdale, California, because the more we're on mission and on point, the more we support, the more we can actively give and be involved with world missions. We need missionaries who go out into the world. They end up planting churches, changing lives and cultures. These things grow and thrive. There's places in the world that are now sending out missionaries back across the world. Some people are sending missionaries to the United States to hit certain ethnic groups here that are hard for us to reach because we don't connect with them that well. And so there's these urban centers where there's large populations of, of different ethnic groups and people from other countries are now sending missionaries back to us to reach them. Missions is an ongoing effort. It, the, the Great Commission is not isolated and it's not meant to be secluded and it's not at war. We're not at odds with the world. I don't care what political party tells you we're in opposition to the world. We belong to a far greater party and at a greater affiliation. We're not at odds with the world. The world is our mission field. People need Jesus. And it's our job as a church to be involved with this idea of worldwide missions and connecting with people. It's not, a, it's not something that is in opposition. I started with this example of my children being obedient and things I don't need them to be obedient to sometimes. They want to do the things that are fun for them. They want to do the things they like. And I, and I ask ourselves, have we become that as the American church? Do we do what we like and what pleases ourselves? It's not fun to watch things like we just watched. I've watched that several times leading into this message because I didn't want to get up here and, and be choked up and unable to speak. So instead, I, I sat in my office and, and got choked up there by myself. And, and you know what happens is I just see it, and, and so I'm, I'm going a different route to end is, is I, 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 I just caught it here. I watched that video so many times so I would almost be numb to it when I came up here and shared because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to not be able to just share. And so I had a whole different conclusion, but we're going to go a different route here. I think sometimes we see the need in the world, and we see it on the news, and we see it, and we see it, and we see it, and we see it, and we become numb and callous to it. And, and, that, and even just that time, like the first time I watched that, I'm like almost bawling like a baby by myself. And now I watch it, and, and I've seen it. I know. I've seen the numbers. I've seen it many times. It, it doesn't. It, it didn't hit me the same way the first time. And so I think what we've done is we've seen so many needs in the world, and we're, we're told of so many needs in this world, and it's just like, well, I throw my hands up. There's a lot of need. I can't do anything about it. And we just get callous, and we get numb to it. And here's the reality. And just, just be, you know what? You, you can't do anything about it. God can, though, and he did through the person of Jesus. And now we can engage people. And I can't go out and change a world, but I could give to someone or go somewhere or do something that changes a life or changes a family. And as we as Christians get that, even in our small community, in our small church, the more we engage, the more we can change, the more people we can impact. And so I just think, what, what are we doing to do that? Man, we don't just throw our hands up and give up because, well, there's 150 million people suffering from this and we can't reach them all, so I'm just not going to do anything. You can make a difference to one, maybe two, maybe three. But we can make a difference somewhere. I think the challenge for us is, is to do something. I want to end with Romans 10. I had to pull it up on my phone because it wasn't in my notes. Um, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him and whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What are we doing to see the good news taken out in our world? To engage our community in Oakdale and to be taken in this world. And we can't, we can't do everything, but Jesus did. He paid the price for sin. And now we engage people with this hope. That man, you may not have any hope on earth you can have hope of eternity with him your sins are forgiven we're this ambassador of this reconciliation message back to God and I would just say for us as a church may we never become complacent God help us to not become calloused to the fact that the world needs Jesus help us to not become myopic to our own needs give us a heart for the nation's Give us a desire to reach people here in Oakdale and around the world and then engage in that. Churches in Europe and, and even some in America now, they set empty. They've become historical, basically artwork and relics that people look at. They're not filled and full of life. So maybe we meet in a schoolhouse. The church is a gathered body of believers on a mission to tell the world about Jesus. So I don't care where that takes place. I don't know how long that means we meet in a school. But the mission is not to accomplish a better building for us. It's to tell people about Jesus. So how are we going to do that? Let's pray. Lord, the task seems overwhelming when we see the need in the world. May we not become disheartened, but become encouraged that for some reason, someone told me about the message. Someone told me about the hope of the gospel, and it changed my life. And now we go out in the world, and we could share that message with someone else. Lord, help us to realize this world needs Jesus, and you've put us on mission to tell them, to support people who go and tell them, to be engaging our world. God, may we see that that we can do something and that you can take those things and turn them into great things, that you've used the gospel to change lives and change cultures for thousands of years, and it's the continuing truth that people need to hear about today. So may we commit ourselves to engaging our world and getting involved and seeing this gospel message proclaimed. Thank you that you saved us. And now help us to go and proclaim and tell others of this salvation. God, as we worship you now for that, for your salvation, man, it just takes me back to Psalm 96.3. As we declare, declare your greatness among all nations, may we see more people come as worshipers of you and see people turn back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.